Welcome to the Arizona Wine Guru Podcast. A couple of housekeeping announcements. We're about to bring to you a fabulous winemaker that you are going to learn so much from. Uh, incredible guy, Michael Pierce, here in this episode. We did this episode live at the Southwest Wine Center outside, and you'll hear some, some drive-by traffic. You'll hear some wind. Uh, overall, I think it was an incredible interview, and the audio is good, so I, I think you'll appreciate this. For sure, you're going to learn a ton in this episode. And this episode is brought to you by the AZ Wine Crawler, the new fun wine tour alternative. If you haven't seen this thing, go on Facebook, AZ Wine Crawler, or Instagram, at AZ Wine Crawler. Or just go to the website and check it out. So many people are having a blast as they do their wine crawls. It takes you through the Verde Valley AZ Wine Crawler Wine Trail. It's a hop-on, hop-off daily shuttle. Very inexpensive. And you can do the AZ Wine Exploration on your day, your way. azwinecrawler.com Now I bring you the episode with Michael Pierce. Welcome to the Arizona Wine Guru, of which I am not, but I'm about to introduce you to someone who truly is. I'm fortunate to say he was my instructor, teaching me a little bit of his incredible knowledge about wine, and running and the director of the program at the Yavapai College, the full-functioning commercial winery there, and that is, uh, was an awesome experience for me. And then, also, Michael's uh, has a has a vineyard, and he's got a couple tasting rooms, and his family is in wine, and just got featured in what Wine Enthusiast magazine, 40 Under 40. I mean, if you guys come up to the Verde Valley to, to taste incredible wine, this is the guy you want to go and taste his wine. And plus, you just want to pick his brain because he's full of incredible knowledge about wine. So I bring to you Mr. Michael Pierce. Thank you. Thank you for uh, taking the time. I know it's a busy time, harvest, and plus... Oh, it's all right. We're just past harvest. All right. Yeah, and we've got this nice fall weather. Not not bad to sit outside and look at the vines, and it's a perfect time of year in the Verde Valley, really, right now. It's beautiful. College is back in action? Yeah, we're fully functioning. We had um, actually the most enrollment we've ever had, believe it or not. Yeah, we're doing some online classes, doing what we have to under the parameters of COVID, but... You know, wines, the grapes are going to grow and the wine's going to get made and our taste room sales are going crazy. Sweet. Yeah, people enjoy the wine. Um, there's no shortage. If anything, the appetite to buy wine's probably increased. Because <laughs> people are sitting home. <laughs> They're sitting at home and ready to drink wine and we've got it for them. So That's awesome. Better keep making it. Great. Well, let's start with uh, a little bit of your background. What brought you to wine? Why? How did it work? Um, what was your story? Following a hobby. You know, I... It was not an intentional choice. It was just enjoying doing something, making wine at home and um, making wine that wasn't good. <laughs> and then, well, you know, learn I need to, to go to school, figure out some more. And um, it was kind of one thing led to another. I was doing art and visual communication and doing graphic design type stuff. Oh, wow. Um, sitting behind a computer, which I knew just didn't quite feel perfect. Um, and then after I went to school, I, I learned you could travel and, and make wine. And it's like, well sign me up for that <laughs> so I, I did, did some harvest surfing went uh, northern hemisphere southern hemisphere three times um, and as soon as that happened I got hooked I knew I wasn't going to go back to sit on a desk and run you know Adobe Photoshop I, I still get to do some of that stuff now which is a nice outlet but 
um, one thing led to another and it was like taking opportunities and finding jobs and making wine and learning from people and next thing you know we've got a, a wine label with my, my dad and I'm working at the college and so sweet it is yeah 15 years harvest surfing hemisphere to hemisphere because it goes one to the other yeah right? so um, you know New Zealand their southern hemisphere they're way down there so they will be picking kind of Febu into February to March. Oh, nice. Maybe even into April, depending on where they're at. So it's an opportunity to be able to go down there and see uh, a full vintage when basically we have dormancy and the vines are just starting to become alive in the Northern Hemisphere. And then you can get a job in the Northern Hemisphere and travel back up and where I ended up in Oregon. And then I went down to Australia and you know was able to just kind of go back and forth. It's kind of a nomadic lifestyle, mm -hmm. but it's a compact time where you're working just you know, 12 to 14 hours, 12 to maybe even 16 hours a day, packing away the money. You know, you're not you're not doing anything other than working. Right. Um, so you can travel, make some money, and then after that, you maybe do a little vacation, and then go to your next harvest job and cool. make some more money. And you got to mentor under different styles, different makers, right? Um, you know, I was so young in the industry, I don't even think I, I understood what I was in front of at the time. I was in front of different winemakers, but. You know, the New Zealand industry is so different than what we have here in Arizona. Arizona, it's these small boutique, you know, mostly family-run places, and you could go and meet the winemaker, and it was a small thing. Where in New Zealand, it's this humongous industry that is for export, you know, and, and good on them because they've been able to establish um, a culture there, and they've been able to establish throughout the world that if you've got a comprehensive wine list, you need to have a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc on there, for example. If we could get to that with Arizona, I think you'd start seeing a lot more production and a lot more um, yeah, sales going on. So they've been able to create this thing where they're massive wineries. Um, I don't think I'd want to go back to that, but and th these are some of the things I reflect on now. And at the time, I was like, this is cool. There's you know, a humongous industry here, and it's not even a lot of populace, but they make it, and they send it all over the world where we're making wine here and we're having people come to us and we're selling it directly to our customers. So it's, it's I don't, the winemaking itself doesn't change, but the approach to what you're doing and the styles that you're, you're trying to achieve, I think, do have impacts based on what your outlets are for those wines. That's interesting. And obviously mass production, right? Yeah. So that, that's a whole different ballgame. Oh, the ground shakes, you know, when they turn the must pump on because it's a six inch, you know, it's, it's just... <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's big production, you know, dump trucks of, of machine harvested fruit. Um, but that didn't bother me. I loved it. I wouldn't, like I said, I wouldn't want to go back to it because I didn't have the connection to it. You know, the fruit goes by. You don't know where it came from. You don't know who the vineyard manager was. You know, you're not going to follow the fermentation through. We're here in, in Arizona. It's all small lots. You know, I probably know the guy who owns the vineyard and farmed it and did all of it. And he might have even been the guy who drove it to the, to the winery. Um, and then we get to follow that wine all the way through, and it's it's not a mystery to me what's happening there. The intimate relationship is is there. Oh yeah, I think that's important. And so uh, for the for everybody listening, we're outside of the uh, Southwest Wine Center right now, which is the wine the winery here at the college, and that's why you'll hear some some noise as we're doing this, but uh, that's how we like to do it, go on site. What do you think, Michael, is the biggest uh, early takeaway from the change 
other than the hands-on and intimateness, has there been anything in regards to your methodology that you've picked up now that you're doing it here in Arizona? What's different about um, it? You know, we're still learning, um, which I enjoy. We're not in a in an industry where you kind of get pigeonholed stylistically. You know, if you're in Napa, anticipate making cab and maybe some Chardonnay. I mean, there's di there's diversity, but um, not the same way. There not is. creatively, no. Not in Arizona, like they'd have in Arizona. You can make your own, carve your own little niche and do your own little thing. You know, if you're in Oregon, it's going to be Pinot Noir for the most part. Maybe some Pinot Gris, maybe a little bit of Riesling. Um, here we can be a little bit more intuitive and you're not considered outside the norm. So if anything, if you are more creative, you're, you're going to be have some, some feedback from customers. People are actually going to get excited about what you're doing and see, seek out what you're doing as opposed to following in the footsteps of somebody else. So we're still trying to figure out what we're creating, but we are creating something here. And some of the varietals that have actually started to make like make the map in this area, right? Like yeah. you know, the Malvasia that we did here. Mm -hmm. um, other other vintages that you see where people are, are kind of making um, headway and specializing? The Picpole Blanc we have here is great. White, um, I think they just fit with our climate. People want something nice and crisp and refreshing. Um, anything higher acid, even like the Grenaches I, I really like. Um, Graciano is another one that's nice, dark red, Spanish um, variety. Um, What's your I, best vintage that you've got going right now at um, your place? I really fall back on that Malvasia just because the Malvasia loves to be there. Um, any of these Italian varieties we have, like the Barbera we have up here is always excellent. Um, you know, we struggle at this specific site because we've got some diversity in the soils, but the variety itself proves itself to want to be there. It likes the, the sunshine, it likes the warmth. Um, so I think Barbera is a good one. Even things like Rafasco, um, they're lesser known in, mm. in the U.S. Uh, Rafasco is from northeastern Italy, okay. so it might not be, you know, like Cabernet Sauvignon, a name everybody knows, but it's from, you know, European wine grapes, the same as Cab, Cab Sav was. So we're going to have to have some years of education to get people up to speed with what we're doing, but we're making some cool things that they've never heard of before. That's awesome. Yeah. I tried your Tempranillo at the tasting room over a week or so ago. It was fabulous. Oh, thank you. By the way. <laughs> yes, very nice. That's a good one. That likes to be here, too. Um, very vigorous. Yeah, it was, um, really was good. Yeah, so it puts out a lot of canopy. Um, we're finding that we're, we're making sure not to, to water it too much, so definitely def, uh, deficit irrigation. Mm. So once we get the canopy we need, we, we try and really minimize the amount of supplemental water. Um, Tempranillo can be challenging because it tends to be higher pH. So once again, try not to set too much fruit. You know, have a, a moderate amount of fruit. Too much, too much fruit, it, it'll take too long to ripen, which just means your pH and your is going to go up and your acid levels will go down. So Tempranillo's got great character and can do really well here. Um, it's a matter of finding the balance. It has to be managed pretty closely. Yeah, if you find the balance in the vineyard, it will show through and you'll have balance in the wine. Nice. That's beautiful. How'd, you, uh, how'd they find you in Wine, wine Enthusiast? Um, I, didn't, um, well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, Somebody tasted your wine? I suppose Obviously. so, yeah. Yeah, I, I was, it was an honor to be yeah, selected for that group. Um, 
And it happened all during the middle of a pandemic too, which was interesting. Normally they do like a photo shoot and it was kind of a digital photo shoot where I was out in the vineyard here behind us. Um, and it seemed kind of surreal, but yeah, it's like, oh, it's wine enthusiasts, I guess. But yeah, but they're not here. They're not here, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was cool to be in a national publication. I appreciate that. Very good, yes. Yeah. Well, I think if anybody needs to be recognized out of this area, I know there's a few guys and you're definitely one of them. Thank you. For sure. So, I, obviously, the COVID is a challenge. Has, have you experienced a challenge in the actual winemaking? Uh, the winemaking, not really. If anything, that's the, um, the sanity amongst the insanity is being able to go into the cellar and just do what we do and enjoy it and let that be a break from the rest of the world. Um, really, the challenge has been, since we are an industry that is about connecting people, you know, it's small production, it's tasting rooms, it's tourism, you know, come up to the Verde Valley and meet some people and try some wines. And COVID's a break from that. Like, we can't do that. You know, people have germs and we have right. to have distance. Where we've created an industry, which is all about connectivity of people. Yeah. So that's where the, the challenge is. We found some ways that we're being appropriate with it and having, you know, social distancing in our tasting rooms and um, appointment only. That way people can come in. It's their own little space, small groups. Probably feels more personal to them. I actually think w there's aspects of it that we will continue on going forward because oh. when there's a reservation, it's like they've got, you know, the attention of, of the tasting room people and there's a good discussion and it's just a little bit more, more intimate. More educational. Yeah, I it's, love that. it's a special treatment and I think it's it's beneficial on both sides. We like to be able to have some time and not have to, um, you know, run around our customers, actually engage with them. And then they get to tell and hear our story, um, which is what connects them to the product. Right. That's beautiful. Who, who do you idolize? Who, who is somebody that you would look to and say, man, that, that's the kind of wine I want to make when I start making wine? Um, I, don't, I, don't know, um, I don't know who I, I idolize. Idolize might say. be a tough word, yeah, but um, you know what I'm... Who do you really think, man, that is some good shit yeah. <laughs> right there? I remember um, it must have been a mid-90s wine. And my, my parents were into wine, and they would, whenever we went on vacation, they were somewhere tasting wine. And it was the first Arizona wine that I distinctly remember, and it was a mid-90s. It was a Dos Cabezas that um, was made by Kent Callaghan, and it was called Buena Suerte. And it was the first Arizona wine that was like, holy cow, this is really good. And it was like, wow, there's something here in this state. And that was when I was just first starting to get into wine. And he's had consistent wines that have been that good for years. Wow. Yeah, so he's probably the first person I think of. Kent Callaghan. Mm-hmm. And that's Dos Cabezas there out in Wilcox. He's now his own winery, uh, Callaghan Vineyards. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, Dos Cabezas has kind of changed hands and... Um, Todd Bostock's the main winemaker. And there's some history behind Dos Cabezas and all of that and what happened in Wilcox. And there's a lot of pioneers that came in. Um, Al Buell was one of them that helped bring in some varieties like Malvasia Bianca. Uh, people didn't understand what, even what that variety was or why it would be good. Um, and some of those early people um, that Kent and Todd were associated with helped establish some of those things. And then Dos Cabezas changed hands and now it's it's owned by Todd and Kelly Bostock. So that was in the mid-90s you were having, is that what you just said? The that, was the, that was the age of the wine. This was probably mid-2000s. Okay. Yeah. 
So I didn't recognize that those guys got started even back in the 90s like mm -hmm. that. I thought no. it was actually right at about the turn of 2000. No, Kent, Kent's been going since early 90s, I think. Wow. Yeah, he's been around for a while. Wow, okay. Well, that's yeah. good information. You'll have to ask him what his yeah. start was. I'll look forward to that. What do you feel is the been your best vintage that you've done so far? Um, in terms of uh, which year? Yeah. I remember... 2012 being a really, really strong year. Um, Arizona is a really vintage-specific state. Normally, we have monsoon rains, which, as the monsoons go, the vintage goes, because it's right in the heart of our ripening harvest period. Um, these last two years, we've had no monsoons whatsoever, so we've right. just skipped over that entirely, and everything's got um, nice and ripe. Um, I remember 12 being, being good across the boards. Um, 19 was great. 19 was a real high... Uh, quality, but also a high yield yeah, we had year. A lot of fruit, right? Yeah, a lot of fruit, which was good. Because um, then we went into 2020 where there was some frost and some hail damage at different vineyards, and we almost had like a whiplash back where it was, you know, we had this excellent vintage of 2019, and then 2020 was not quite as high. What do you do you think with the lack of rain even last fall? Um, uh, well, we had a lot of snow though. Like up north, right? We're still at a deficit for for precipitation. Um, we, at, um, my family's place down in Wilcox, had certainly some spring frost. So probably in April, sometime we, we saw some frost damage in our Viognier block. But it, it appears as if we also had some fall frost last year. Mm. So kind of end of October, first part of November, uh, the vines start going dormant. They actually become woody and they dehydrate and they go to sleep for the winter. Um, if you have a frost event, so it gets below 32 before they fully lignify, you can have damaging of the cells, which those buds that are going to sleep are going to be the buds that actually create your growth the next year. So if in the previous growing season you had frost damage, you're going to have a decrease in crop the next year. I see. Yeah, so you're, you're actually growing. Like right now, we are growing the buds that will produce our fruit for 2021. And they'll hopefully sleep before frost hits and then it becomes a bigger. Yeah, so bigger even though we have produce. All, all of the fruit is off of this vineyard, they still need to do work. We still need to make sure that we're giving them the nutrients, they're photosynthesizing, they're storing carbohydrates. That way next spring they come out nice and strong. Nice. And then they've obviously got to go in and do the pruning and prepping. Is that already done? Or does that happen here? No, that'll happen um, uh, kind of into January, first part of February, we'll start. Um, we don't do any of the pruning until it's fully lignified and fully asleep. Um, we're at a period, uh, in the vineyard at least, where we can take a little breather and take nice. a couple months off. You know, we'll do some weed management, make sure that soil moisture is up. But for the most part, the vines can go to sleep. Um, and if we don't prune them back, they'll just simply overbear. So when we cut them back, we're actually um, setting some positions so we, we know where the fruit's gonna be, but then also limiting how many clusters will be on each vine. Interesting, and so for a specific varietal, as you were mentioning, you don't want too much fruit on the vine, that's when you're gonna prep that out in your preparation, right? Yeah, it, it's kinda hard when you're first cutting back and you're, and you're getting into the vineyards for the first time. You think you're, first of all, you think you're hurting the plant, like, you know, it's a living thing, but you realize the more you cut, the, the better off it's gonna, the healthier it's gonna be in the, you know, that growing season. If you have too much there, it's just gonna turn into a big 
gnarly bush that's not going to be able to ripen any fruit because there's going to be clusters all over the place. Um, and then likewise, if you don't clean it up and you leave buds and, and spurs going in different directions, um, it's not going to grow up and it's not going to have good you know, shade on your fruit zone. So there's a lot of things you're trying to do when you're pruning. It's a really important task to get done right. Interesting. Yeah, the farming aspect of it is that's a whole separate deal a lot of times. And many times people will just literally leave that up to somebody else, right? Yeah. If they're going to be winemaking and they're just going to bring in fruit, they don't even ever deal with that. Well, I got into this um, on the winemaking side of things. I knew I wanted to make wine. I just like creating things. Um, and then the longer I've been into it, when I think about how my wines turned out and what I like about it or what I don't like about it, I think back to the vineyard. And so the, the longer that I've been making wine, the more that I've appreciated and continue to put my mindset as to what's happening in the, in the vineyard, because that's going to dictate more importantly than what I'm going to do in the cellar. Mm. What happens in the vineyard is more important to the overall quality of the wine than what happens the winemaker does in the cellar. Wow. That's good information. What do you think is going to be going on in this area? Well, I mean, what's your vision? I think it's growing rapidly, frankly, but what, mm -hmm. from your perspective, what do you see in the wine culture in Arizona? Um, the wine industry has a, an opportunity here to present itself as a sustainable industry um, because we are low acreage. You know, we're a specialty crop. We're not like um, some of the other large ag, uh, not that there's a lot of ag, uh, large ag in, in the Verde Valley. But um, things like corn and alfalfa where, you know, you need to grow 100 acres to make it financially feasible. Um, for a, a winery, it might be 5 to 10 acres is, is a you know, industry size operation. So we're low acreage. We're also low water use. We use drip irrigation and our crop is drought tolerant. So there are times when we can actually forego irrigation um, and, allow, and the vines will live through it just fine where some of these other commodity crops that's not the case you got you got to keep the water on them so uh, and then furthermore there is other economic impacts to the wine industry when it comes to tourism and the hotels and the you know the restaurants so we are not a standalone entity here we're not a standalone uh, industry we are value added to the region so i think that the growth potential is high um, and it's not as simple as wine and only wine it is wine and culture and you know tourism and tax dollars so I, I think it's it there's a lot lot of potential to grow and i think the reason why it wouldn't grow is because collectively you know our, our economy and people don't have the money to, to to buy the good things in life which is wine right. but but the wine has a lot of up potential i i feel it does this area particularly obviously i mean most of the fruits out of the south, and I think that area is going to build too in, in their tourism and what have you, but most of it happens right up here as far as the tourist aspect. Yeah, right? we're right next to Sedona. I mean, where we're sitting here, we can see the Sedona Red Rocks, and we're in between Sedona and Jerome, which are two big tourist draws. And while you're driving up from Phoenix to enjoy that, stop and try some wine Absolutely. and enjoy your day. So um, that is a huge benefit to this area. And then it's a great place to grow grapes. So if, if you're lucky enough to have a little spot of land um, that has access to water and it's off the valley floor, maybe grapes are a crop you want to try. 
interested. Go to school first before you, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> before you come and enroll in the program. <laughs> You'll learn a lot about what you think you're going to do and why, just yeah. like I did. <laughs> What's the most rewarding thing about your job here at the college and also is about now you've um, developed and really becoming recognized as a winemaker? Um, well, I would say most rewarding. Um, I understand what my students are going through because I was exactly like them. I, I just wanted to do it and I wanted a, a place to learn. The Southwest Wine Center didn't exist, you know, in 2004. It, so I, I, I couldn't have come here if I wanted to. Um, so it's nice to be able to have, to help establish that, something that I see the value of and I see this area have, having needed for quite a while. So that's very rewarding. Um, and it's great to see how the students who have come through here are able to take the next step. Um, and they have, we've got students all over the place. It, now it's to the point where almost as if you haven't gone through the program, you're, you're gonna have to work harder to keep up with those that have. Nice. Um, where before it was like, you're on your own. You know, you, you figure it, you either leave the state to go get the education and the experience you want, or you learn the hard way. <laughs> and the more expensive way. And a lot of people had to do that. They made the mistakes in the vineyards or that took them longer or they made some financial mistakes. That, um, so that, that is rewarding. I, I think the learning curve is now gonna be a shorter period of time for people, which is good. And is the college getting uh, national recognition at this point, do you feel? Yeah, and oh what's yeah. what's going on with that? Do you get asked for, hey, who's, who do you got? We need people, we're looking for X or we're looking for some people that wanna come and intern or What's yeah, that, what's that look like? Um, you know, that happens weekly, it seems like. Wow. I, you know, I, I, I've got, I could use your students. Um, I, I always start with, you know, our average age is 48 and a half. <laughs> right. So that a lot of them. Schlepping, schlepping a bunch of stuff and crawling in and out of tanks. Yeah, a lot of them aren't probably what they're expecting when they say I could use, a, a, you know, hire one of your students. We have some of those folks too, but a good uh, portion of our students want to be entrepreneurs and start their own business too. Yeah. So we, yeah. we got the full gamut. Our students, somebody turned our students on to wine in their life. Um, we weren't the ones to do it. And then they came to us. And we just helped them through that, that journey. Are you seeing international students come into this program yet? Mm, no, I haven't. We haven't had any that I can think of. Because I heard that there's some people that are coming into Arizona to try to figure out what we're doing in this climate oh, cool. and how we're doing it. I wondered if you'd seen any of them in the program. I could see in time that'll be the case, but but not yet. Um, we've been full. This last fall, I had 33 students in my class. Normally I have 26. The dean kept raising the cap and raising the cap. So, wow. and that's a good problem to have, as they say. Um, but no, I've not noticed any international students yet. Cool. So if people want to come up to the Bodega Pierce tasting room, what do you recommend? What's your top two that you want them to taste? Um, man, try, try the Malvasia or the Sauvignon Blanc. Um, definitely something white or the Viognier depends on what Shelly and Jay have got opened up and if you talk to them nice they'll probably open something else up for you or the rosé <laughs> the rosé is the um, been the crowd favorite what is that made um, with uh, Grenache 100% Grenache oh. go, yeah straight to press um, so very little time on skins intentionally which creates a real soft color um, more acid focus it's crisp refreshing uh, completely dry um, can't make enough of it, so get yeah get it while you can. We sell out every year. Wow. Um, 
And then for the Reds, probably making me thirsty. <laughs> I know, especially <laughs> on a day like today. Yes. Um, uh, probably the Tempranillo Grenache. That Tempranillo is fabulous. Yeah. yeah. That was damn good. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think um, that variety shows kind of that Arizona high desert, um, almost like dried herb character. It just it just tastes like this place looks and feels. Yeah, it's, it was fabulous. And what about here at the Southwest Wine Center, if they can get lucky enough to get an appointment? What, um, what good wine do we have from last year, or what do you recommend here? The Viognier has been stellar for a couple years in a row. Um, Picpole Blanc's the new one that's coming on. Picpole was the last block that we planted, so we're just now starting to get a full crop. Uh, matter of fact, uh, 2020, this last vintage, uh, we were able to get six barrels, which was great. Um, I think that'll be a star for years to come. Uh, and then the Rafasco. If you're like into big, deep reds, the Rafasco has been great. Nice. I have to try that. I like the reds. How do you spell? What's Pickpole? How do you spell it? Uh, Pickpole. Uh, it's a really long spelling. P-I-C-Q-U-E-P-O-U-L. Pickpole Blanc. It's from uh, the Rhone, uh, Rhone River Valley, southern France. Okay. Yeah, it's a high acid. Uh, it doesn't have... It typically doesn't have a ton of uh, aromatics. However, Arizona, I think, pulls more out of it than a lot of places do. Um, but it's just got this crisp refreshingness without being overbearing with the acidity. I think it's nice. Beautiful. Yeah, Tumbleweed does a nice uh, pick pull one too. Oh, nice. John. Mm-hmm. I've yet to get, I hope to get with Chris and have her on an episode, too. Yeah, that'd be She'll good. be great in the TV series. And lastly, just really simply, I appreciate you very much taking the time. I know it's a busy time for you, and you've always got so much everybody pulling at you. In all oh, no, happy, happy to so do I it. I appreciate that. And um, hopefully we'll get in a chance we can get you back in, and I'd love to do a tasting with you. So Great. maybe at a time where you could do a, a mini, we might be able to do a live Facebook or something and have you kind of share what you shared with me when we went through the program. I think a lot of our listeners would be totally into seeing how something like that works. The sensory evaluation, the how to how to taste, those yeah. kinds of things. So All right. maybe we'll get you on for that a little bit later. Right on. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate I appreciate it. it.